Thank you so much, Scott, for joining me today. Very excited to chat about your journey and everything you're doing on the venture side these days with, with Mercy Corps. So uh, before we, we dive into everything, you know, Mercy Corps, Mercy Corps Ventures, everything that's going on in that space now, talk a little bit about, you know, your journey, your career path before Mercy Corps. Yeah, absolutely. Thank, well, thanks, first of all, for having me on here. Uh, really uh, looking forward to the conversation here. Yes, well, just to introduce myself, I'm, I'm Scott Onder. I'm the Chief Investment Officer of Mercy Corps. Uh, it's a global humanitarian aid and development agency uh, that works across more than 40 countries. We have a team about 6,000 people strong, uh, really working side by side with, with communities that are, that are living through poverty, conflict and, and the climate crisis. Um, so my role here uh, at Mercy Corps is to set the global strategy for expanding our impact investing work. We focus a lot on innovative finance, Web3 initiatives, and, and also developing strategic partnerships with technology ventures. Um, yeah, and I got into this work about 15 years ago. I was in a spot where I had worked a bit in venture capital, investment banking, and, and real estate finance, and I had gotten a taste of doing uh, some sector uh, studies in emerging technologies, looking at how things like remote sensors and, and remote sensing devices and fintech mm -hmm. could be utilized and commercialized a decade out plus. And, and that got me really into the idea that technologies uh, were developing an exponential pace and, and had the potential to really solve some of you know the toughest global challenges out there. So really fast forward uh, a few years later, I ended up looking to see how emerging solutions like fintech, uh, digital financial services could essentially bring people who were unbanked uh, into the global economy to, to empower them to fully participate and have access to some of the you know basic building blocks of prosperity like bank accounts and savings and credit, many things we take for granted, but could be transformational for, for underserved communities. And so was really looking at what, when I first got to Mercy Corps at ways that microfinance, um, in particular, digital financial services could, could empower unbanked communities. Yeah. And then actually back in about 2013, 2014, um, I was spending a lot of time in Kenya and uh, other emerging markets yeah. uh, like Indonesia, and we were seeing that Mpesa, right? Was that was that Kenya? Did they make that exactly? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I had done a consulting gig back in 2008, right when Mpesa was coming out. That was around the same time that the first generation iPhone came out. And, yeah, yeah, right, right. And I had a, uh, I had a consulting opportunity to explore how could smartphones uh, take microfinance to the next level. I had a fintech background, so I was looking at things like crowdfunding platforms like Prosper and Kiva, and I stumbled across Mpesa at that time, and. and Ended up connecting the dots, you know, that, that digital financial digital financial services delivered over over mobile platforms could really be a game changer and could offer the next generation of solutions to provide financial services to the unbanked. And you know, fast forward a few years later, I was spending a lot of time in Kenya and in Jakarta and other emerging markets and seeing that you know adoption had really caught on. Um, I think over eighty percent of Kenyan households were using M-Pesa by two thousand fourteen. Wow. And, wow. You know, that kept increasing to over 90% a few years later. And so, you know, seeing that there was this kind of nascent but growing startup ecosystem uh, in Nairobi, a uh, bunch of startups that were building on top of M-Pesa. They were, you know, certainly fintech startups, but they were startups just that were trying to integrate mobile payments. And that became a really great platform to build on top of, to be able to use the, the rails of M-Pesa to, to integrate payments into a, a range of solutions. Uh, but we saw, you know, essentially that a lot of these entrepreneurs just lacked access to early stage 
capital pre-seed and seed stage right. capital that uh, is more was more common at the time in the in the states. And so we ended up standing up a, a venture capital fund to fill that early stage gap. And and we looked for other ways that we could also be supportive, that we could strategically partner with a lot of the the startups that we were starting to invest in. And you know, our hypothesis at the time was that the global operational platform we had, you know, across 40 plus countries, you know, hundreds of offices. Yeah, and, great you know, deal flow. Amazing. Yeah, it could be deal flow and it could also be a, a, a springboard for, for some of these startups to be able to engage with our networks of partners. So we had partners that were financial institutions, mobile network operators. You know, we had networks that, that could be useful to these early stage startups. So uh, for the last eight years, we've been really testing out that hypothesis and proving out where we could be supportive to entrepreneurs uh, alongside the capital that we're investing in. I love all this. I was wondering if you can touch on a little bit of the, the companies or maybe startups coming out from around the world. I mean, you mentioned sort of fintech and you mentioned web three and you mentioned banking right there, there's a lot of some interesting things going on in our banking system here in america at the moment where we sort of have this traditional you know banking system set up it's kind of been around for 100 years hundreds of years right it's kind of never really changed and like we mentioned with mpesa and other you know platforms around the world they kind of skipped a lot of the traditional brick and mortar you know banking infrastructure and kind of went direct to technology which kind of has some benefits to it i think they you know, they, they had an, almost an advantage of of kind of going straight into to using technology, like really high end technology to kind of build their banking infrastructure or credit infrastructure. I guess, what are some of the things being built now? I guess we probably have the foundations built maybe at this point after a decade of maybe build, building fintechs globally, I mean, emerging markets. Like, I guess, where are they at now? If you want to touch on things coming out of Latin America, Africa, or, or even Asia, are everything? Are everybody about on the even playing field right now, or there's some areas of the world doing better than others as far as like innovation and in, in the fintech space? These are, these are great questions and, and things I enjoy thinking about every day um, because it really is a dynamic global context that that startups are operating within, both from a financial services standpoint as well as from just an access to technology. You know, we are seeing technology advancing at an exponential rate. You know, especially when it's open source and when innovation can happen in a permissionless way. And I, I personally have a great deal of conviction that. You know, we can apply these emerging solutions to end poverty and also protect the planet. And in emerging markets, some uh, really encouraging dynamics are at play, too. You know, that we're seeing uh, the advance of, of mobile Internet and smartphone penetration. The, the cost of uh, data and mobile Internet is, is really dropping precipitously. So it's, it's uh, increasingly affordable. We're seeing a lot of uh, data analytics companies popping up that are that are really utilizing big data and AI in, in compelling ways to tailor solutions to people living in kind of lower income strata. Um, energy access is, is becoming more affordable. And then, you know, we're seeing a range of other kind of open source decentralized technologies that are leveling the playing field. So, yeah, I can get into that a little bit. But, you know, I, I guess up front want to say that, you know, technology on its own is really not enough to, you know, to get these solutions into the hands of, of people and communities that need them the most really requires innovation and in, in distribution mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to the last mile. Um, yeah. Involves integrating education in a, an intuitive way into the user experience to, to drive uptake. There's still um, a lot of human capital involved at that last mile, huh? Yeah, yeah. It requires boots on the ground, person-to-person -person, uh, interaction, communication channels that are tailored to, to last mile communities, and ultimately, you know, affordability, bringing down the cost of these solutions either through economies of scale or, you know, embedded fi financing. 
And this is really where entrepreneurs come in. I, I don't see big companies necessarily always leading the way in terms of, of yeah. driving uh, affordability and access. And so, you know, I personally have a really strong bias toward entrepreneurs and, and believe they are <laughs> like uniquely capable of, of solving some of the world's toughest challenges that, you know, governments and NGOs are, are really not um, as uh, well positioned to, to address. And so, yeah, I think in, in terms of the larger question that you asked uh, related to financial services, you know, historically, I think the current global financial system is, is rather broken. I mean, it excludes 1.5 billion people um, mm -hmm. that have no access to financial services. And there's another billion people that are underbanked and have yep. uh, struggled, uh, that struggle to access basic financial services. Um, a lot of that has to do with, I think, as you alluded to, the, the financial system is still operating on rails that were built 50 years ago. Uh, Archaic, was, let's say. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, the SWIFT system was, was built in the 70s and we're still using that. And it takes days and weeks to settle payments, uh, especially across borders. And, you know, even within mobile money uh, systems, a lot of those are walled gardens where telcos, mobile network operators essentially own the, the mobile money right, rails right. and they can determine who gets to build on top of those rails and who, who doesn't. So they can offer an API and, and pull, or pull that API out from underneath startups that are building on top of it. They can limit access to who gets to build. They can take fees uh, related to, to app ecosystems. Um, so all those things uh, are limiting, I think, the, the reach and ultimately impacting the underserved, more marginalized user more than it impacts medium and upper income communities. And so that's where we're extremely excited about decentralized and open source infrastructure, uh, public blockchains, and the ability to, for anybody really to, in a permissionless way, build on top of these uh, public blockchains. So that's where we've been investing quite a lot in, in Web3 and crypto solutions uh, globally as well. And, and really, I think we're seeing that this opportunity space extends well beyond just financial services. So certainly we're excited about yep. decentralized finance and fintech, you know, bringing more people into uh, the financial system and empowering them to engage in, in, in the global economy. Uh, but we're also seeing opportunities to transform how aid is operated and delivered. Mm. We see these as really effective coordination tools for addressing the climate crisis and incentivizing uh, uh, different behaviors. And yeah, so I think you know, the entrepreneurs that are kind of building in these arenas are, are really doing disruptive things that that could ultimately have uh, quite a profound impact um, and, and, and uh, address some of these challenges around poverty and, and the climate crisis that, that my organization is really focused on. Yeah, what I love about the Web3 ecosystem or, or blockchain, it, it really provides the opportunity for transparency, of course, but then also I think efficiency. Like when we talk about these big problems, like just aid funding, right? I mean, it's obviously a generic, big generic term, but there's a lot of complications that go into actually getting the money to the right people, you know, in Haiti after an earthquake, right? There's a lot of these steps that to, to finally get get the aid that's needed and then vice versa with just, with just banking, right? Or credit, like microcredit or microfinance. Like there's all these different things where I believe just efficiency needs to be <laughs> sprinkled into to these old archaic rails that we talked about. And I think that's sort of the power of, of DeFi or Web3 or blockchain or whatever we want to call it. They kind of, they all use the same foundational rails really um, to, to drive people to build on top of them or, or build their own protocols. I guess talk about what is, for people who aren't uh, aware of like how these protocols or blockchains can can be beneficial in emerging markets. Like, I guess what problems are they are they solving in the real world? Because I think we we tend to 
just think of crypto as Bitcoin and NFTs and Ethereum. And it's and it's like much more than that. There's actually real kind of work going on in the Web3 environment of like solving global issues that I think we all care about. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, completely, you know, agree with some of the points you were making around the opportunity for, for crypto and, and blockchain solutions to increase transparency, enhance efficiency, you know, lower costs. It can, you know, speed up. Uh, payments uh, and offer faster settlement. And, you know, we're already seeing that happen in contexts uh, uh, around uh, crisis response, right? So in Ukraine or Mm -hmm. um, the earthquake in Syria, um, we're we're seeing that just sending cash payments to to people in crisis using crypto rails can can speed up and and increase transparency. And and the the settlement time, it being Mm. instant, and low cost or, or no cost really is, in my mind, going to transform the way that, that aid is delivered around the world. We've been testing that at Mercy Corps since 2018, 2019, and really seen so much potential there. Beyond the delivery of humanitarian aid and especially cash transfers, you know, we're seeing that crypto and Web3 is transforming the core infrastructure of the financial system. Um, and it's also transforming the delivery of, of a wide range of customer-facing financial products and services. So, you know, remittances were probably one of the first mm-hmm. use cases yeah. that I came across back in, you know, 2013, 2014. We were seeing startups in Kenya starting to, to use uh, Bitcoin to, to make remittances more affordable. And I think there was a small wave at, at the time, uh, 2013, 2014, of, of companies that were doing that. But it was solving real problems for, for people we, I worked with. Sending money into Kenya was always challenging, uh, especially when folks didn't have bank accounts that were able to accept international payments. Uh, so, so we were already using some of those remittance tools, gosh, almost nine, eight, nine years ago. Yeah, and, crazy. You know, the other use case um, that I think has real product market fit is, is clearly stable coins. Um, mm-hmm. And until recently, I think we've taken for granted that, you know, we've been living in a low inflationary <laughs> economy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but, but most of the world doesn't. Most of the world lives in uh, places that experience volatility and in, in, in currency, hyperinflation oftentimes. Um, you know, for for people living in those hyperinflationary environments, having access to a stable coin uh, savings account or an ability to do payments through through stable coins can, can really be a lifeline. And we've been pilot testing that now for a few years as well. It can also help pe- bring people into the, the global economy to be able to participate. So we, we're seeing young people having opportunities to do digital work on smartphones. Um, but the challenge was how, how can they get paid? Right. And, right. Um, we, we piloted with various partners ways to send stablecoin payments to young people that are, that are hustling and, and doing work and, and have those payments come from companies across the world. Um, so really, would really, this be specifically using like USDC as the primary stablecoin? Yeah, we've done it um, with USDC. We've done it with with Celo as a partner. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, great. Yeah, the number Cello's of different great. use cases. Um, and then you know, beyond access to finance, I mean, I think we're certainly seeing credit and insurance are, are key areas that are innovating uh, using crypto and Web three. And I can come back to those later. But we're really excited about regenerative finance, um, seeing yep. ways that carbon offsets and, and uh, project developers in emerging markets who are creating projects uh, that, that are offsetting carbon, such as you know, agroforestry projects or uh, other kind of nature-based solutions that are carbon sinks can kind of develop in carbon credits that can then be tokenized and, and brought onto uh, the blockchain and, and essentially sold via exchanges where 
price discovery is happening and we're really getting to what is the true cost of pulling a one ton of, of carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, yep. you know, to date, most of those transactions have been over-the-counter transactions between large corporates who are trying to fulfill their net zero. It's just a voluntary market right now. Essentially, that's that's kind of what it is, right? It's not really a, I guess like a regulated, I guess they might be, but I think that's where all that, the action happens is really in the voluntary market, right? With these big corporations buying right. offsets. Yeah. yeah, and so, you know, typically they... Um, are looking to buy a lot of carbon credits at once. And right. the it's only the larger project developers that can really deliver those larger amounts of credit that are certified as well as being high quality carbon credits. And so um, yeah. we're seeing opportunities for blockchain to, to bring down the cost of measurement, reporting and verification of, of carbon credits. Um, we're seeing um, just by virtue of, of bringing those onto exchanges that the, the price discovery that's happening can, can lead to much more efficient pricing and, and uh, market dynamics. And ultimately, we're seeing that that can make it possible for smaller project developers to be able to get... That's the game changer. Yeah. yeah. Project financing, you know, through forward contracts and, and through being able to tap into these uh, these marketplaces. So that that is probably, you know, we're, we're seeing so much progress there. Um, it's really encouraging over the last couple of years to actually see the voluntary carbon credit markets that you were leading to really pick up steam and uh, become yeah. viable because there's so many different applications that can help uh, communities and emerging markets if they're able to develop new income streams from from carbon offset projects. So it could be from cl- climate smart agriculture, regenerative agriculture. It could be from forestry, you know, afforestation, reforestation projects. We're working with a company in Indonesia right now, Forest Carbon, on a carbon offset project in the peatlands of Sumatra and, and finding ways to tokenize those huh. and bring them on chain. So, yeah, no, there, there's uh, a lot of potential in, in that space as well that, that we're quite excited about, too. On that note, I kind of wanted to touch on, again, I love talking about like sort of startups and, and what they're doing. And maybe if you want to shine a light on a couple, maybe talk about some that Mercy Corps Ventures has has invested in. I see Open Forest Protocol. We just had Chris on from Topple, maybe Complete Farmer. If you want to just maybe touch on some of these startups and actually what they're doing to kind of solve a bunch of these problems, whether it's whether it's in the, the carbon space, whether it's in just the general fintech space, whether it's food space, whatever it may be, whatever you want to shout out. But I, I love talking about you know startups and it's really good to to give them a little a little shout out. So if you could maybe do two or three and kind yeah, of spotlight yeah, happy them a little to. bit. Yeah, no, it's great that you're already uh, talking with with folks like Chris at Topple and, and uh, Open Forest Protocol and Complete Farmer. So your listeners might have some background already. We're you know we're a thesis driven investor, uh, which means that we're really looking to anticipate the solutions that will be coming to market years out in really specific sectors. So we consider ourselves an investor in climate adaptation and resilience solutions. And so we're investing in innovations in adaptive agriculture that that strengthen uh, the resilience of small farmers and food systems. As you've been hearing, we invest in inclusive fintech, uh, like insurance that, that help people transfer and manage climate risks and um, mm-hmm. embedded credit to help increase the productivity of, of small businesses and so forth. And then we invest in climate smart technologies, uh, some of which you were just alluding to, you know, such as uh, flood data analytics platforms, uh, tropical weather forecasting models, supply chain solutions like Topple that you mentioned, nature-based solutions and carbon credit infrastructure like Open Forest Protocol. And so, you know, I think I could jump into a few of those. You know, one, one example is a company called Floodbase, which is a flood data analytics platform, you know, that enables hmm. insurance companies, governments to, to accurately assess and, and price and respond to 
catastrophic flood risk. You know, with climate change, that's increasingly uh, becoming more and more of a problem. And so they're using best-in-class flood models and direct observation through satellite data to, you know, essentially underwrite parametric flood insurance policies. And, you know, they were featured on the cover of, of the journal Nature. They're, this is really deep science, but it's also coming uh, into a very practical use case uh, for insurers and, and, and governments. And, you know, we've invested in companies that, that you mentioned, uh, like Open Forest Protocol, which are solving a lot of the challenges around measurement, reporting, and verification of, of, in their case, forest data for carbon credit. You know, as we were discussing, you know, it's currently relying on a legacy system, which is expensive and inaccessible to smaller project developers. And um, Open Forest Protocol is really creating a comprehensive solution for MRV uh, of carbon removal. And their products, you know, uses mobile and, and web applications for, for field data uploads. And uh, it's transparent because it's blockchain based and that verification of the environmental data is, is all there to, to, for anybody to, to see and to audit. Um, and so really, you know, creating a new market for, for small and medium sized forestation projects, uh, which we're excited about. And then, uh, yeah, no, I think another company that we're, we're excited about in the supply chain space, you know, at the last mile, a, a lot of the retailers in Africa and, our mother, and other emerging markets are really just small informal yeah. shops. They could be mom and pop shops, duka shops, but they really are the backbone of, of retail in, in, in the African continent and other emerging markets. It's just like small business in America, right? I mean, it's sort of different scales, but yeah, you know, yeah, small exactly. businesses are huge here. Exactly. And um, I think in, in most of the kind of informal small businesses, there, there isn't really much access to formal financial services. Mm -hmm. So, And it's also quite inefficient uh, to be able to access inventory. Often vendors have to close up shop and go to wholesale markets uh, to, to actually purchase right. their inventory. And they can't purchase that much because they have limited cash flow. And, and now they're also grappling with supply chain uh, interruptions, shortages. Uh, we expect those supply chain interruptions to only increase in frequency and magnitude in, in with with climate change. And, you know, I think that could be really seen as one of the big, biggest operational challenges for vendors. And so we have a few companies in our portfolio that are solving this from multiple directions. So one is called Wasoko, which is the last mile distribution platform and agent network that really delivers directly to small shop owners, allows them to order uh, over mobile have those uh, inventory products delivered almost immediately and then offers essentially buy now, pay later types of credit. And, and that allows them to stock more inventory uh, and ultimately sell more. And, you know, because they have a, a very sophisticated logistics uh, and supply chain tech platform, they're able to anticipate any sort of supply constraints and, and pricing fluctuations and so forth to, to help uh, stabilize that for, for their clients. We have companies that are doing similar things in West Africa uh, in the logistics sector. We have, uh, we've invested in companies in Latin America that are doing similar work. But for us, that, that really is, is key to communities getting the essential foods, uh, sanitation products, and medicines and other things that they need to, to be healthy and, and to be more resilient in the face of climate change. Unbelievable. One one quick quick question that I have one last question. One would be is, I guess when, you, when you're looking at startups and I guess they come across your, your desk, so to speak, right? Is that, a, I guess, does the, does the funnel come just from, you know, you work on the, like the work on the ground with Mercy Corps and then they maybe pass on 
stuff they see in the field that's very interesting? Or, I mean, do you have just cold outreach from, you know, entrepreneurs in, in Africa or other parts of the world? I guess, how does, how does the, you and the team sort of assess what comes across, you know, your, your desk, so to speak? How does your process work on like, you know, choosing, yeah, yeah. choosing entrepreneurs uh, to back? Great question. Um, because we are sourcing uh, investment opportunities from across uh, Africa, Latin America, and Southeast Asia. And uh, we really do embed uh, our team in some of the most vibrant startup ecosystems, like in Nairobi and in West Africa and uh, in Colombia and in other markets. And that's essential. Um, we've been really a, a, uh, embedded partner in those markets for years now. Back in 2014, 2015, when we started investing, there were not many venture capital funds um, and there were not many that were willing to come in as early stage as we were at the pre-seed and seed stage before product market fit. And so over time, uh, we've built strong relationships. I, I'd say the biggest source of deal flow for us actually comes from the entrepreneurs in our portfolio that are recommending us mm. to yeah. other entrepreneurs. And <laughs> it, it also comes from investors that we've co-invested with that have come into some of these companies, either with us or, or after us, and, and they see how much we are you know, rolling up our sleeves to, to support these companies in addition to the capital we're forging partnerships with them we're uh, providing a lot of consulting services to the companies and so other investors want to bring us into deals so we get a lot of referrals that way later stage investors um, may see companies that are just too early for them and so we get a lot of referrals that way you know with the thinking that you know mercy Corps yeah. ventures will work with them for a couple of years and you know accelerate them to that that series a round that they can then participate in yeah and then we're just um, I think trying to publish and try to kind of share as all the learnings that come out of our portfolio, both kind of the failures that happen as, as well as uh, what's working. And so just being kind of defaulting to open <laughs> everything that we're learning, um, uh, I think also pulls more people into our orbit, which has been nice to see over time. Awesome. The, the last question I, I have is really around the future. And there's a lot of things changing, <laughs> you know, really week to week, year to year at this point. It's really, you know, it's it's a little bit I don't know, jarring how fast things move and change in, in this sort of environment. I guess, what does success look like to you in the next three to five years? Like, What are some of the goals you would like to achieve, you would like to see happen? Well, I, I've been really encouraged to see a lot of the ecosystems that we're investing in develop just substantially over the last eight years and, and want to see that continue to happen. I think there's still capital gaps. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think there's capital gaps right now in climate adaptation and resilience. Uh, mm -hmm. Quite profoundly. So that's one of the biggest areas of focus for us. There are a lot of venture capital funds that invest in climate mitigation solutions, yep. essentially decarbonization, energy access, and so forth. Maybe a little too much money into to that side, right? And then not enough into the, the yeah, minutiae stuff. I'm happy to see it. But, um, you know, the, the fallout from the climate crisis is already here and the communities that did the least to, to cause it are being impacted yep. first and they're being hit hardest. And, you know, 130 million more people uh, can be pulled into poverty, extreme poverty this, this decade as a result of the shocks and stresses from climate change. And, you know, there's just a real capital gap investing at the earliest stages, uh, at the earliest and riskiest stages of innovation in climate adaptation solutions like, like what we've been talking about. And so really just trying to catalyze more capital to that uh, to address that problem set and, you know, really think it's going to take a, a tremendous amount of creativity and, and uh, coordination and collaboration between, you know, venture capital investors like us with 
you know, entrepreneurial ecosystems, even with governments and philanthropy to, to try to get enough capital to, to address this, this challenge. And so, yeah, a decade from now, if we're, we're seeing, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars being invested every year in, in climate adaptation and resilient solutions for communities and emerging markets, that, that to me would be, you know, the, the biggest uh, accomplishment possible. Amazing. Well, thank you much, Scott. I mean, I, I, I could go for an, uh, I can go for an hour two hours in this stuff. Uh, I want to be conscious of your time, but I appreciate you taking the time. It's fascinating work. I, I love to hear it. Love to chat about it. There's so many interesting things going, being built, I think around the world. And I think we, sometimes we take it for granted of, of what people are building and what people are dedicating their time to, because, you know, there's a lot of problems in the world, a lot of things to be solved, but um, there are people, you know, building it and doing it. And I think it's, it's so important that we, we showcase that and they get funded, right? These problems are, are there and you know it's great to make money you know at, at, you know investing in all all this these different things but maybe you can make just a little bit of less money and invest in some of these things that at the foundational level like need to be invested in for these other these other startups to even work and scale properly right um i don't know so i appreciate you taking the time man i really do um best of luck for the next decade well i completely agree yeah and, and really appreciate uh the conversation and uh yeah thanks again for having us on